There is a uh, story of a young preacher who uh, finally got what he wanted. He always wanted to get the opportunity to be able to preach in big church on Sunday morning. He uh, had several opportunities to teach and preach for the youth group and for shut-ins and in nursing homes, but he just always wanted to be able to preach for his own congregation when everybody was gathered. And so he got the opportunity, and he was told by the pastor when he would be preaching. And, and the truth is, he was ready, but he was probably a little bit overconfident, too overconfident. And we knew that because when people began to call him up saying, hey, brother, we're praying for you this Sunday as you prepare, he said, hey, I'm good. Don't need the prayers. That's probably never a good sign, by the way. And so he, he just told him, he said, you know, I'm, I'm good. I, I feel prepared. We're good. And so and that morning when he was introduced by that senior pastor and told him to, you know, come on up and uh, to preach for him, uh, the young man stood up, stuck out his chest, lifted up his head, and he basically ascended up to the pulpit uh, with a real sense of pride. Well, as he began, everything looked good from the beginning. He began to speak and began to thank the pastor and everybody for the opportunity to preach. And then he began to, immediately after that, just kind of told a little bit of a joke, just to kind of break a little bit of the ice. And then when he told the whole congregation to turn in their Bibles to, he went blank. And he couldn't remember, this is a nightmare of mine, by the way, hey, he couldn't remember where they were supposed to turn to. And so he was very nervous about it, didn't know what exactly he was going to do. And so he began to just kind of stammer and stutter just a little bit at, at the time and, and, and to try to buy some time to figure out where he was within the text. And, and he just couldn't think of it. And so finally, he just kind of gave up and he said, I'm so, so sorry. And his head went down, his shoulders began to slump, and he began to descend from the pulpit in all humility. So after the service, the pastor came up to him, and he said, I'm so, so sorry. I don't know what in the world happened. And he said, young man, he goes, let me give you a word of advice. He goes, had you gone up the way you came down, you would have come down the way that you went up. And he was telling them, in essence, that, hey, this truth in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I think we understand this through the clear teaching of the Word of God, but I think we also know through our own experiences that, that pride always leads to misery in our life, always. And humility before the Lord, and what I mean by that humility before the Lord, I mean completely being dependent in every area of my life, not only my salvation, but every moment of every day, completely depending upon God and God alone leads to true joy. And I think that's what we begin to see in this passage this morning in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39, I think here what we begin to see is that truth played out. In fact, we see, we, we see three ways that humility before the Lord allows us to experience joy. And we want to look at those three ways this morning. First of all, humility before the Lord allows us to rejoice in the blessings of others. We, we pick up in verse 38, if you will. He says there, he says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is, this, why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. 
Elizabeth was six months pregnant when the angel of the Lord uh, ended up visiting with Mary, telling her that she too was going to have a child, and this child would be the Messiah of the world. Uh, the angel Gabriel also told her that, that her, her cousin, Elizabeth, that she too was pregnant with a child. And so uh, this text seems to suggest that immediately after she receives this message from the angel, she makes haste and immediately sets out on a very difficult hundred-mile trip from Nazareth to where Elizabeth and Zechariah lived. So they were on their way. Then when they finally met, the Bible kind of describes this, this time of great rejoicing between the two. And why not? Both of them, cousins, both of them are now pregnant. And one, by the way, is a senior adult who is pregnant. The other is a virgin who is pregnant. So very clearly, God has been at work in the lives of both these women. And so they come together. They begin to rejoice. And, and, and I think it's important at this particular point to understand that even though Mary knew that Elizabeth was pregnant, Elizabeth had no clue about Mary and her pregnancy until, until they welcome each other and they hear, she hears the voice of Mary. The Bible says as soon as this happens, that within her womb, within her womb, within her belly, all of a sudden the child that's within her begins to jump and leap for joy within her womb. Now, we know that this is no ordinary baby. We know who this baby is. He's John the Baptist. He is the forerunner to the Messiah. Uh, One of his jobs was to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah and to introduce Jesus as the Messiah to the world. And we see here that he gets started in this ministry very young. In fact, what he begins to do is it's actually been said of him that he's the only preacher in history that used the womb as a pulpit. And so here he is, he's preaching, and this is also the fulfillment of Luke chapter 1 and verse 15, which says, which when the angel said that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. But John was not the only one who was, who was overtaken by the Holy Spirit. We also see that, that Elizabeth herself was filled with the Holy Spirit. How do we know? Well, she, we know because of the discernment that occurs. Uh, she was, has been a mom for six months, and moms understand what it feels like babies to be able to move and to be able to poke. And uh, my wife used to always complain about their elbow. She goes, I think their elbow is stuck. And then she would push in. I go, stop pushing. Don't push, you know, don't do that. She goes, but there's an elbow stuck. And I'm like, how do you know that's an elbow? I know it's an elbow, right? So she just knows. And so who am I? I don't know. And so uh, she, would, she would always do this. So this mother knows what it's like to have a baby move inside her womb. But this was radically different than anything else. And the reason she's able to interpret it is because the Holy Spirit came on her and gave her the discernment of what exactly what was going on. And what she came to understand immediately was that Mary was actually pregnant and that her child was the Messiah of the world, the promised Messiah they had all been waiting for. And so she begins to spontaneously uh, combust and, and speak in this loud voice. She says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? A baby is the first one that we read in the Bible to recognize Jesus Christ as Savior. And a woman is the very first one who comes to profess Christ as her Lord. And what we find here is that the joy of both, experience with both, is recognizing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That is the source of all joy, is when one humbles themselves and recognizes Christ as Savior of Lord. But I want you to notice something. 
I want you to bonus, bonus, don't bonus, because I don't know what that is. And so it might not be good. And so I want, you to, I want you to notice something, the byproduct of rejoicing in the Lord. When we rejoice in the Lord, humble ourselves and rejoice in Christ above all else, we are then able and capable to truly, genuinely rejoice with the blessings of other people. And this is, where, this is where Elizabeth finds herself. Now, this is extraordinary when you consider the situation. Remember, Elizabeth is the one who had gone all her life not being able to have a child. Wanting, 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 praying, 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 never that prayer being answered. And then she gets to an age to where, to where it's impossible for her to have children. And she knows it and everybody knows it. And, and during this time, she's constantly under the suspicion of everybody who thinks that the reason that she can't have a child is because of own secret sin inside of her heart. And she's lived with this. And then finally, one day, an angel appears to her unbelieving husband, in, in a way, uh, that she's going to have a child. And now she's been sitting back with all of this time, not really being able to tell anybody. Her husband can't tell anybody. She can't tell, tell anybody. Why? Uh, because they've gone into self-quarantine. They've self-quarantined themselves, and now they're social distancing, right? And so they're doing all this. They're staying away uh, for six months. She hasn't been able to tell anybody. Finally, Mary comes through the door. She's excited to be able to tell. And you know what Mary does? Without even opening her mouth, she one-ups her cousin. Do you know what that means to one-up somebody? You, you might be married to somebody like that or work with somebody like that. Um, it, it's the type of person where you're like, dude, something amazing happened and you share it. And they're like, hey, that's really great, but let me tell you what happened to me. And all of a sudden, it's bigger and better, their story always. And you're like, I don't even know why I tell these things, right? Because they're always one-upping me. Well, Elizabeth comes in and she's got a story, but she's immediately one-upped. In fact, she's three-upped by, 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 by Mary's story. How, how is that? Well, for one, we know that Elizabeth is pregnant. She's a senior adult. That doesn't often happen. And all the elderly ladies said, amen. Doesn't often happen. But yet, Mary comes on the scene, and she is a pregnant virgin, and that never happens, right? That's one up, all right? Second, uh, we know that, that John the Baptist, Elizabeth's daughter or daughter's son, is going to be the, the forerunner to the Messiah. Amazing what a privilege Mary's son's going to be the Messiah. That's two up. Here's the three up, right? The three up is this, is that her son is going to be the greatest man ever born of woman. Mary's son is going to be a great man and God. He will be a God man who is born to her. So she completely threes up, s s steals the whole show. She can't even get out her message and her joy about what God has done with her life without Mary walking through the door, the Holy Spirit coming over her, and her doing what? Not getting angry and jealous, but rejoicing. How can that happen? It happens when a person humbles himself before the Lord and realizes that, that it's about him and not about us. When it's about God and all about him and who he is and who he's uh, 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 in his glory, then when we see God work in the lives of others, even blessing them, what happens? We can genuinely rejoice. Why do I say genuinely rejoice? Because oftentimes we don't. You know what this is like. When you sit there and you get a brand new car and go, hey, I got, and you're like, I never get a brand new car. Just use your imagination. A brand new car, and you get this great dealer incentive, and you go back and go, I paid less than what the dealer paid. No, you didn't. They lied to you. But I got better deal than what the dealer got on this thing. And you go and you share that with somebody and go, man, that's amazing. I've got the exact same vehicle, and they gave it to me. 
right? And they want up. And what do you say as a good believer would? I'm so happy for you. So blessed for you. That's great for you. You're saying all the right things, but what's happening in your heart, happening in your heart, there's jealousy that begins to stir. You're, it's very hard for you to be genuinely rejoicing for the blessing of another person. Why? There's too much you. It's just too much you. But when we begin to be completely faith-based in, in, in our attention brought to the person of Jesus Christ so that he is our all in all and we humble ourselves and say, not me, yet you. Then when we see the blessings of God around us at other people, we're not, we're not offended by it or we don't become jealous of it. What do we do? We rejoice because we know every good and perfect gift comes from the God who is above. We know that God is working in them and working for them, and we ought to rejoice. Can you imagine what it would be like if you and I actually gripped this, if you and I were truly people that were all about humbling ourselves before God and exalting him above all else? Can you imagine how radically different our homes would be? How radically different our churches would be? We wouldn't have to go around feeling that guilt. I know you feel this way. I know you feel that sense of jealousy sometimes when something good happens to somebody else. I know it because you're a person. And can you imagine to genuinely, the joy that you would have instead of sitting there and being jealous of what they have or begin to covet what they have, the home they have or the spouse they have or, or the job they have, instead of coveting that, that genuinely you were freed up of all of that and said, God, you're moving. You are moving and you are doing a great work. Can you imagine how much joy that would fill our hearts instead of envy and jealousy? You know what else it would free us up from? Probably from vicious gossip. Because when something does good happen to somebody else, we have to explain it away. Have you ever noticed that? Well, the only reason it's going well for them is they are... And somebody just kind of slips something in instead of just sitting there going, God is so, so good. You know where this happens more than anywhere? Is when, when concerning spiritual things within the church. You say, well, certainly people aren't jealous of other people's, you know, being used of God and things like that. That could have been the case for, for um, Elizabeth here, for Mary, but she's not at all. Uh, but, but it happens oftentimes. You say, it doesn't happen. Certainly go and read the book of Corinthians. There, one of the primary problems with the book is that the people keep fighting over who has the greatest spiritual gift, right? And some are jealous of others and others are boastful than the rest. You even see this in churches as a whole. Have you ever noticed that whenever a church begins to grow, right? Whenever a church begins to grow, other churches all of a sudden begin to say and become critical and go, hey, they're growing because they're not preaching the word. That's why they're growing. And then if their church begins to grow, then they're like, why is your church growing? Well, it's because we preach the word. Well, which one is it? Is it preaching or not preaching the word that causes it to go? Well, for them, it's because they're not. For us, it's because we are. That's just the way the world works. Wouldn't it be great if we could genuinely, look, it may be growth because it's all fun and party hats and no depth of the word of God, but it may very well be that God is working and doing something in someone else that he may not be doing in you. And are we the type of people that can genuinely rejoice over that? We can only do it when, guess what, when you and I are truly humbling ourselves before the Lord. Um, second thing that we see within the text of Scripture, not only does humility before the Lord allow us to rejoice in the blessings of others, but the humility before the Lord allows us to treasure God over his gifts. See, it wasn't just John and Elizabeth who were experiencing joy here. 
Mary was experiencing joy as well, and that was evidenced in the fact that she begins to sing this song that Mary ultimately wrote. Now, this song is, is known as the Magnificat. You probably are familiar with that terminology. And, and basically, that, that name just simply comes from the first word in the Latin translation of this text of the New Testament. And it's just the first word in the Latin translation. It's Magnificat, which simply means uh, magnifies. This is Mary magnifying Jesus Christ. And so what we do know is, what we don't know is when she wrote it. We don't know if this was something that she began to write on that 100-mile journey or if this was just something spontaneously she wrote on the spot as she's filled with the Holy Spirit. But one thing we do know is that this song is absolutely chocked full of Scripture. In fact, one author has pointed out that this particular song of Mary has no less than 15 distinct Old Testament references in it. So, so what she's doing is she's gathering from the scriptures. This teaches us that Mary knew the word of God. She knew it. She studied it. She memorized large sections of scriptures to her heart. So notice what happens. When God begins to move, she immediately begins to identify that it's God, and her response is clearly theologically and biblically sound. She actually uses the Bible, its terms and its images, in, in, in a way that would ascribe worth to God in light of what he's ultimately doing. Um, Skip Heisig, a, a pastor uh, out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, said that, you know, all of us are buckets. Okay, anyway, we're all buckets because he said we're all full of something. And, uh, and we're all full of something. And he goes, and the way you know what that something is that you're full of is that somebody shakes you up or bumps you or stirs you up. And he goes, and whatever you're full of is going to come slashing out, is going to spill over of whatever's inside of you. And he goes, and if that's the case, then Mary was full of God's word. Because when God comes and shakes her up with this news, what comes spilling out naturally is the word of God in her response to him. And let's see what it is specifically that she says, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, what this shows us is she's very clear on what God has done for her. And, and, and he knows that, that he, he's made her the mother of the Savior. And, and she knows that, that people are going to honor her for such for generations to be able to come. 2,000 years later, we're still honoring her in a way by reading about her story and what she wrote here and what she's saying before the Lord. So all of that is, is true. But what I love is she recognized why God blessed her. And again, it wasn't because of something righteous. It wasn't something because of something she earned uh, uh, in and of herself by just being more righteous than everybody else. She did it by the grace of God. We know that she says, for he looked on the humble estate of his servant. He said, I got nothing to offer. There's no reason why God would have chosen me out of all the other people in the world, but you know what? I'm thankful that he did, Amen. I'm just thankful that he did. I have no idea why he ultimately did this. So then he goes on and says, he who is mighty had done great things for me. An instrumental part of our worship should always be thanksgiving. Amen? Should always be thanksgiving. 
Uh, we should take the time when we're teaching people in, in, in one-on-one discipleship on how to pray, we teach on what's called the acts of prayer, which stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So the, the thanksgiving is an essential part of, hey, just spend some time thanking God for all that he's done, all that he's given, all that he's provided, all that he's done for you. And that is an essential thing. And she does that very thing. But here's the key, I think. I think the key is she doesn't allow her worship to remain there. It goes beyond that. Her relationship with God is based more than just simply what God is going to give her or what he doesn't give to her. Do you you understand that? It is great. She knows that God is giving her the honor to be the mother to the Savior of the world. But it's in his giving that she goes deeper and begins to understand something about God himself and the character of God, which causes her at the end of this song to worship him, not for what he's given, simply for what he's given, but just simply for who he is. She recognizes that he is mighty because of the gift that he has been given. Why? Because she is now going to have a baby. It takes some power, supernatural power, to put a baby in the womb of a virgin. She gets it. She also recognizes this, that, that, that he's holy, that a savior is being sent because people have sinned against him and there must be a payment that is made by sending the Messiah. And then she also knows that he's merciful. Why? Because he is indeed sending the Savior who would take away the sins of the world, and he would pay for it for himself. But do you see what we're saying? What I'm trying to say is, church, our our worship here in the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray must be chocked full, yes, of thanksgiving. But you and I worship unto God has got to go beyond just receiving gifts so that our worship to God is based on just who he is. I think you and I would agree. I think you and I would agree that if God didn't do anything else for us, never answered another prayer except for sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross and die for us, we would forever have plenty to be grateful for. But have you considered this? That God in himself, if he had not sent his only son and given you the gift of Jesus Christ and the gift of eternal life, he would still be worthy of all worship, honor, and glory. Look, I love to give gifts. I love it. Um, I love to give gifts to our kids. I like to get stuff for my wife. I I like to give it to other people. It's just something that I like to do because I'm hoping that if I give a lot, they're going to give me a lot of stuff. And so it's really just, it's not really what it is. It's just something that I like to be able to do. And I love to be able to watch their faces when you give them something. And each one of them know this. I'll take them aside and go, hey, I'm really proud of you. And I'll slip them money. And uh, and they'll sit there and go, daddy, I love you. I love you too. Go. And then they go. And, and, and I love that. And I think every parent loves to be able to see that expression and see that child, their eyes light up, and them to be so grateful and to be able to uh, hu- hu- hug you and, and, and all that. But, but what really makes my heart really warm is when nothing's given at all. And they just come up and they say, I, I love you. I care for you. 
I don't want a relationship with my kids where it ultimately depends whether affections for me is an ebb and flow of whether I'm doing something for them or not doing something for them. What I would hope to do is that my gifts would show them something about my heart for them so that they would love me and not simply the gifts that I've ultimately given them. And certainly that is the case for God as well. Look, we can't separate him, God, completely from his gifts because it demonstrates who he is. But if you and I are truly going to humble ourselves before the Lord, our prayer life is not going to be always this. God, thank you for what you've given me. Thank thank you for what you're going to give me. Uh, Thank you for what you're going to give me in the future. Hey, God, I need you to give this to me. It's going to go beyond that just to God himself. Let me give you this phrase. I wrote this down this week. True worship is not dwelling and singing about my happy circumstances or even expressing hope for more, but rather rejoicing in the being and character of God. And the only way that that is possible if you and I humble ourselves before the Lord. So here we see the humility before the Lord allows us to treasure God over his gifts. And let me give you one final point. Final point is this. Humility before the Lord keeps us from being humbled by the Lord. It keeps us being humbled by the Lord. If you look in the life of Mary and in her words, that God exalts those who humble themselves before the Lord. That's evident. It's evident in her life. It's evident in in everything that she writes. But it's also evident that God humbles the proud. Uh, We pick up here in verse 51. He says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in his thoughts of of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of, uh, of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So what sticks out to me here is as she's speaking about and describing this Messiah, her child, uh, she speaks in the past tense. Did you notice this? Uh, she, she uses phrases like this. Note once again, he has shown strength. He has scattered the proud. He has, he has brought down the mighty. How in the world do we reconcile this? How in the world has he done all these things when he hasn't even been born yet? Well, I think there's two ways to be able to look at this and interpret. I'm sure there's more than two ways, but let me give you two. Number one, this could very well be Mary uh, speaking and looking at what God has done in general throughout history. And one thing that he has done in general is he's exalted the humble and he has done what? He has humbled the proud. And so think in terms of this. Think in terms of Old Testament and what God did. Think about his humility of, of Pharaoh uh, when, when he refuses to let his people go, keeps rejecting God, keeps rejecting his commands. And, and finally, God humbles him by why? By washing his army and military away in the Red Sea. Or think about the Philistines, that the Philistines and, and, and Goliath, who comes and he's arrogant towards God. Who is this God of Israel? Speaks down to him and God humbles him by a little boy with a bunch of stones and a sling comes and takes his life and the army is scattered. God is faithful to always humble those who are proud. So Mary could be making the connection is that this, is that, hey, God has humbled the proud in the past, and with the coming Messiah, he will continue to humble the proud in the future. Now, here's another way to look at this. It could be because Mary is a woman of the book. She believes God's word. She understands the Old Testament prophecies of what this Messiah would do and what he would accomplish. 
There are many prophecies that talk about him humbling the proud and the mighty. And so what she does is she basically takes those Old Testament scriptures and she speaks about them in past tense as though they have already happened. Because guess what? They are going to happen. They're as good as happening. So she speaks to them as though they already have. Sometimes we speak of this in theology as already but not yet. We speak of them as they've already happened even though their completion will be in the future. But whatever the case, whatever the case, don't miss the point. As certain as God is to exalt the humble, he is certain to humble the proud. Now, I want to make a distinction here really quick. I don't know about you, but when I read through the Bible, I'm like, wow, God really hates rich and powerful people. Because everywhere I read, it seems like, whoa, you know, this is bad. And then you sit there and go, well, good, I'm not rich and I'm not powerful. But then you begin to kind of crunch the numbers and you realize that you're in the top percent of the wealth of the entire world. Then you're like, oh, no, I am in the rich and I am in the powerful. Uh, what am I going to do? God hates me. And so, so he always seems to be after them, always seems to be, then he always seems to be, if you, if you, then this is the way I read it. Man, if you're poor and if you're the downtrodden and if you're being taken advantage of, man, God loves you. If you are rich and you are powerful, boy, Katie, bar the door. Very few of you are going to be saved. Very few of you. I mean, you, God's coming for you. You're in big trouble. And so growing up, that was fine. I was poorer then. I'm still not rich. Well, as far as the rest of the world is, I am. But, but as, far as, as, as far as looking at this, I remember just thinking to myself, well, you better just stay poor. Poor would be good. Then God's going to love me. And then if I get rich, then all of a sudden, I don't know where the cutoff is, but now God hates me, right? And so what, what do we do? And, and the reason I want to clear this up is because there's so much mentioning and there's so much truth. I'm going to preach more on this for the weeks to come and, and trying to figure out a time to be able to do this kind of in a mini-series within Luke. I think I need to address some specifically of what's going on. But we do talk about this issue, the, the idea of social justice, and we have to be very careful with that. And there are truths to that, and then there are non-truths to that. There are truths that the Word of God tells us to be able to take care of the poor, the underprivileged, those that are being abused. Those, that should be our heart place. It's not, it's not first and foremost, first is the propaganda, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but as we go, we can't help but to be able to give a cold water in Jesus' name, a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Do you see that? So it's not reversed. Now, understand the true social gospel of today is different. What it basically means is that is the end of, that is the end, uh, of everything, is that God wants this world to be like heaven, and that's the end game, is to make sure that all just really doesn't even deal with the life ultimately to come. So understand that historically. I'll unpack that for you sometime. But what we find here is, is, is this, is that within it, it's not that God hates. And the reason I'm clarifying it is because I think what the world wants to do is keep drawing more and more distinctions and more and more divisions. Do you get that feeling? And I don't want to do that uh, because the word of God is not doing that. Uh, we're not sitting there and saying, well, God hates you because you make money. Or God hates you because you have a place of influence and power. What he hates is the pride that goes along with it, not the wealth. If you go in the Old Testament, it's very clear that God chooses who is rich and poor. You need to go back to that. And according to his sovereignty, he chooses. And so you sit there, I got a problem with that. Well, then go unpack that and study that. And then you're going to be more disappointed because that's exactly what the Bible teaches. And so what happens is when we look at all of this, we've got to be very careful unpacking it where we say, hey, God doesn't hate you because you're rich or whatever. The problem is, is for the rich and the powerful, there's a much higher chance that they are prideful because they reject any need for the person of God. For the poor individual, 
they're in a state, in a constant place where they are in need, nowhere else to turn. So they are literally built in a situation that makes it more conducive for them to call out to God for God to be able to help them and to be able to meet the needs that they have. Does that make sense? In fact, when you look at James 1.9, this is what he meant by that. Uh, when James writes, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. He says, let the poor not be, not be discouraged because of their poverty. God has actually blessed you in a sense of your poverty that now you are going to be more apt to be dependent on him. And that is what is most important in life. And he says, but the rich, but the rich, they need to what? end their humiliation. He says, the rich must, must, must humble themselves must understand that in truth, they are the ones oftentimes at a disadvantage because it's hard for them to feel and to sense the need of God because everything they have, at least in a temporal sense, seems to be there. Do you you see what's happening here? So when he comes and he says to them and he's telling them, hey, hey, I'm going to be all about uh, the the poor and and, and the weak and and I'm against and I'm going to throw down the rich and I'm going to throw down uh, the powerful He's not just, these are not, it's not because of their wealth and power. It's because of their unwillingness to bend a knee to Christ. And that's the distinction between those things. And so here's what we have. The, the, the question is, there is a joy in bending the knee. There is not joy. There is only misery for those who will not bend the knee. This is true in salvation. Any person who does not humble themselves and come to the point and says, I've rebelled against you and you alone, God. I've broken your law. I'm deserving of death. I'm deserving of eternal punishment. Anything that you would throw at me, you are just to be able to throw it at me, and I deserve even more. When that person comes and says, I know that I'm guilty, but I know that you're gracious, and I know that you are good, and all I can say is have mercy on me, then what does God do? He exalts that person. Why? He's able to raise them because now they are in Christ and the power that he used to raise Jesus Christ and exalt him, he uses the same power for you and I who are in Christ to be exalted to life as well. For the person who doesn't repent and who doesn't acknowledge, what does he do? He gives them what they justly deserve. I don't say that with pride. I mean, you hear preachers sometimes, say, they're gonna get what they deserve that... I take no pleasure in the thinking that people are going to perish. If, if so, then you don't have a real understanding of what this whole judgment thing is about. But the truth is, it's not only in salvation, but it's for you and I, believer. For every day that you and I know the word or ignore the word and yet live our lives apart from the clear teaching of God's word, that is a lack of humility. That is saying, I know best. I know how to live this life. I know how to approach things. I don't need you. It's just like the young man that came up to that pulpit and that day and said, man, I'm going to kill this based on my own preparation and my own ability. What happens? Humility is sure to come. Now, God doesn't do this in the same way as he would for somebody who's outside of the faith. There's no fear for you and I of condemnation, and that's part of the joy. There's no fear for you and I to know that we've humbled ourselves based on the grace of God, by the way, because it is a gift for us to humble ourselves before him. God brings us to that particular point so only he can be glorified in it. But when we come to him and we say, God, we love you, we don't have the fear of an impending judgment one day. And when you don't live underneath that impending judgment, you get to live this life in joy 
constantly submitting to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Thank you for our congregation's willingness to listen to a longer sermon. And uh, Lord, hopefully, God, by your grace, it is ministered to the hearts of our people. And Lord, that we are leaving with a greater sense of joy. We're leaving, Lord, today because as we get out of the way and think on you and humble ourselves before you and see and exalt you, Lord, we're able to enjoy the blessings that you're doing in the lives of other people. God, we are able to come and truly love you. Apart, we love you because of what you've done, but because of what you've done, it tells us about who you are, your character, and we love you all and all and all the more. My prayer for Mercy Hill is that when we come together and worship, that we would be completely fine if stripped of everything, just to praise you for who you are because you are worthy. Only possible to experience that joy, Lord, is when we humble ourselves before you. And God, finally, just, just that last point is, God, I pray, Lord, that all of us today are humbling ourselves before you, that we would just simply pray this prayer, that Jesus, I'm not in control of anything. I can't control anything. I want to be obedient to all that you've called me to do, but when I do, I'm completely dependent upon your Holy Spirit to lead me, to guide me, and help me to live the life that you have called me to be able to live. But Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. Lord, let us humble ourselves before you this morning. Let us humble ourselves before you in recognizing the sins that we have committed and confessing those sins with our mouth, knowing that you will be merciful to forgive those sins. We thank you in your precious name we pray, amen. Let's stand together just for a moment. We'll have a time of response. And I'm just gonna ask you if you would, just if you wanna come forward, you can come to pray or I would love to pray with you. Uh, But just respond to the preaching of God's word this morning just for the next couple moments, all right?